Luke chapter 2, verse 40. If you need a Bible, pop your hand up. There might be a couple more um, coming around at the back. Luke chapter 2, verse 40 to 52. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw, saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and in favour with God and man. Thanks so much uh, for reading, Rosanna. Um, one of the things that we think about when we sing songs is that we, we want to sing hymns, or we want to sing songs with words that are going to come to you in the hardest moments of life, and how sweet the name of Jesus sounds is, is I think, one of those songs. Um, so you may ask and wonder, why, why do, how do we choose the songs we sing? Well, that's one of the things we want to do. We want to ingrain into your hearts words and truths and ideas that will just instinctively come into your mind when you're facing life at its hardest. Um, another thing before we get going... Uh, Sorry about the baptisms. We were hoping to do them here. Unfortunately, the school changed its, its mind and said last minute we weren't able to. Um, but wonderfully, we are now at the Baptist Church, as, as Kit said. So please do try and get there. We're going to aim for five o'clock. You can park in St. Peter's car park, five-minute walk, or Tower uh, car park, another five-minute walk. Um, and if you can get there a little bit early, because it's, it's a smaller space, we just want to make sure we can get everybody in properly. Um, but five o'clock, it'll be a shorter service, about an hour long at most, um, and then a chance have some tea and coffee afterwards, but love to see you come and celebrate and rejoice in the Lord's good work in the lives of those getting baptized. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, praise be to you, for you are good and you are gracious. We will rejoice this evening in particular examples of your graciousness. We look forward to doing that. And we rejoice now, because in these moments you've given us the opportunity to behold your Son, the Lord Jesus. May your spirit help us to see clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, um, I went on holiday with a friend to Iceland. I, I said book us somewhere with some sun, sea, sand, and he booked Iceland. I don't know what he was thinking, but we went to Iceland. It was in the, the summer holidays, um, and we did this four-day trek 
kind of going over a glacier. It was meant to be beautiful and dramatic. And it, it was beautiful and dramatic. The problem, though, was that England were playing Germany in a World Cup qualifier, and that was in three days' time. So we had to turn this four-day trek into a three-day trek, and it basically meant head down and walk. It could have been beautiful. I have no idea. I didn't see much of the scenery. I didn't stop. I didn't look. We just walked and walked and walked. And it made me think, sometimes we can be a bit like that with a Christian life. Head down and just trying to live it. What does the Lord want me to do next? What is next in the Bible that I've got to read? What's the next Christian thing that I've got to go to? What's the next problem in my life that I need to solve? And we put our head down and we just keep going and keep going and keep going. And sometimes that's no problem. But we do need to stop and take a look at the view occasionally, don't we? We need to stop and see all that is good and beautiful and wonderful before us, namely the Lord Jesus. And one of the things we're doing this morning is simply that, stopping and taking a look at the view, having a look at who the Lord Jesus is. Uh, Rooted are with us. Um, We love having Rooted in. Great that you guys are here. Um, A couple of, well, one simple question really. As we look at this passage, how do we see that Jesus is human and how do we see that he is divine? There you go. Have a think about that. So let's stop and look at the view. Jesus is 100% human. Now, the last time we were in Luke's gospel, Jesus was eight days old. Now he is 12 years old. Some years have passed. And do you ever wonder, what was Jesus doing in those years? What was he like as he was growing up? Maybe he was a bit quirky. Maybe he was a little bit odd. Or maybe it was a bit like Harry Potter, before he knew that he was a wizard. If you read the Harry Potter stories, strange things would happen to him. He'd be running away from bullies, and suddenly he'd discover he could jump over an eight-foot wall. Or he'd realize he could talk to snakes, and Harry had no idea what was going on. Maybe something like that with Jesus. Mary says to Jesus, go tidy your room. And he thinks about it, and suddenly it's done. Strange things happening. What was Jesus doing? What was he like in those years from 0 to 12? Well, look at verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. It's actually a little bit disappointing, isn't it? What was Jesus doing from 0 to 12? He was growing. Verse 52, similar verse, Jesus grew in stature. In height, in strength. He's growing. It is what every child does. Feels like we need to get new clothes and shoes every few months at the moment. Laura's parents have got wise to our cunning children and their growing ways. And so every Easter, the girls all get new tights. And every Christmas, they all get new pajamas. But Laura's parents don't get the size they need. They get a couple of sizes too big. I do the same with shoes. I buy them a size or two too big on the shoe front. And for a few months, they look ridiculous, clothes hanging off them, walking around like clowns with massive shoes. But then they grow. They grow into them because that's what children do. They grow, and that is what Jesus did. He grew. Why? Because he is 100% human. And part of that growth includes growing in wisdom, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom. We get the same sense in verse 52, don't we? And Jesus grew in wisdom. 
So Jesus is growing in wisdom. And you've got to understand, in the Bible, wisdom is more than just knowing a few things. It's about living your whole life according to the will of God. So if you read through the book of Proverbs, a a book all about wisdom, it covers everything. Wisdom is about money, how you think about it, how you spend it. Wisdom is about how you bring up your children. It's how you treat your friends. It's how you correct someone. It's how you take criticism. How you deal with annoying people is wisdom. How you pursue sexual purity. Godly wisdom is about living every area of your life according to the will of God. And according to Proverbs chapter 1, it all starts with the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. So wisdom, knowing how to live well, how to live right, starts when you recognize that Lord is God, the creator of all things, that his ways lead to life. And then as we drink deeply of God and his word, as we let his character and his teachings fill our hearts and our minds, then wisdom increases. The more I am filled with the knowledge of God, the more I will see the world like God sees the world. And I will think and feel like God does. Years ago, there was this craze of wearing the the kind of wristband, uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? So whatever situation you're in, you'd look down and wristband and think, what would Jesus do? And biblical wisdom is a bit like asking that question, what would God do? But it's so much more than that. Wisdom is what would God think? What would God feel? What would God hope for? Does this situation call for anger or patience? Should I intervene and confront someone or should I let love cover over a multitude of sins? Should I pursue this relationship or let it go? Is this something to feel sad over or should I move on? Godly wisdom is learning to see God's will in every area of life and that is what Jesus was growing in. He drank deeply of God. He absorbed the teachings of the scriptures and that means in every area of his life he lived in accordance with the will of God. His relationships were wise. His emotional response was wise. He knew when to show compassion and when to confront. He knew when to weep and when to rejoice. He knew when to make an argument and make a stand, or when just to walk away. He he knew how to avoid compromise and keep his heart pure. Jesus grew in wisdom. He lived all of his life in accordance with the will of God. And of course, that made him deeply attractive, magnetic, a compelling human being. Listen to verse 52. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew in favor with God and man. The Lord smiled upon the Lord Jesus and so did those who knew him. Jesus was someone you wanted to be around. He was someone who left you feeling more alive. He was a loyal friend, an obedient son, a hard worker. 
John Watson was an author and pastor in the 19th century in Scotland. He wrote a brilliant description of Jesus. Be on the screen, let me read it to you. No one has yet discovered the word Jesus ought to have said. No action of his has shocked our moral sense. None has fallen short of the ideal. He is full of surprises, but they are all the surprises of perfection. He is tender without being weak, strong without being coarse, lowly without being servile. He has conviction without intolerance, passion without prejudice. This man alone never made a false step, never struck a jarring note. His was life at its highest. Jesus grew in wisdom. His life was life at its highest. And it had to be that way, didn't it? We touched on this last week. Any sinful thought, any sinful desire, any moment of impatience or self-righteous anger, any unkind word or half-truth, and Jesus could not have been our sacrifice. As Hebrews 4 verse 15 puts it, Jesus was tempted like us in every way and yet was without sin. His life was life at its highest. He never stumbled. He was tempted in every way, but never sinned. I just want to pause for a second here and just clear something up or make sure it's clear. See, Jesus, yes, was tempted like us in every way. And that is a huge source of comfort. When I pray to Jesus, Lord Jesus, help me as I battle whatever it is I'm battling. Jesus can sympathize. But remember, Jesus was without sin. And that means there are some temptations that he did not experience. Let me explain. All the temptations that Jesus faced came from outside of him. The devil and the world. The devil tempting Jesus to have all the kingdoms of the earth without the cross. Or the world, Peter, tempting Jesus not to face the cross. You shall not die, Jesus. And we face those kind of temptations, ones that come from outside of us. But we are also tempted by the desires that come from our sinful hearts. If I'm angry and I'm tempted to hit someone or shout at someone, I might resist that temptation, which is brilliant. But that desire to hit someone, well, that is sinful. Jesus never experienced that kind of temptation or sexual desire, a desire to be with someone we're not married to. Inappropriate desire. We may not act on it. We might resist, and that is good. But the desire itself is wrong. Jesus never experienced that. He never experienced any temptation that comes from a sinful heart. He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. No, Jesus grew in wisdom. Every area of his life, he lived according to the will of God. Even in the face of incredible temptation from Satan and the world, he never thought a malicious thought, never gave in to self-pity or bitterness, never deceived anyone. In every area of his life, he lived it perfectly. And it had to be that way. 
If he'd failed once, even for a second, he could never save us. Brothers and sisters, when we think about what I've just said and and, and those temptations that come from a sinful heart, it feels so overwhelming, doesn't it? Well, I'm always sinning then. Rejoice in the gospel. We are not going to be perfect this side of glory. We will strive in all the help that the Spirit will give us. But rejoice in the gospel. The Lord Jesus forgives us all that we have done. And he saves us because he himself didn't do those things or think those things or desire those things. Jesus was 100 or is 100% human and he was humanity at its highest. Stop and contemplate the view. Second, Jesus is 100% divine. Each year, Mary and Joseph would head to the temple for the Passover feast. And this year, Jesus is with them. It would have been a bit of a carnival atmosphere, maybe. The family and wider family and others would have made the trip from Nazareth, perhaps walking up to 80 miles. Might have been 30 or 40 of them. Can you imagine what that would have been like, walking maybe 20 miles a day? Are we nearly there yet? No, we're not nearly there. We've got another 79 miles to walk. <laughs> it was probably funny as well. Singing, talking, laughing, eating, a sense of celebration. They were going to share the Passover. Remembering when the Lord rescued his people from slavery to Egypt. So this whole caravan of people make their way to Jerusalem and the temple and they celebrate and then Mary and Joseph head back home. And it's the classic big family problem. By now, Mary and Joseph have other children as well. They don't realize that Jesus isn't with them. When David Cameron was prime minister, it was about seven years ago, feels like a lifetime ago. We've had a hundred prime ministers since then, haven't we? His family went out for a pub lunch and the Camerons got in their car, they drove home. Only when they made it home did they realize they'd left a child behind. We still elected him as prime minister. These things happen though, don't they? Who's not done this? Accidents happen. And with Mary and Joseph, a whole day went by before they realized Jesus wasn't with them. And so they head back. Actually, here's the thing. Jesus not coming home was not an accident. He didn't get left behind. He chose to stay behind. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Joseph and and Mary are understandably worried. And as a parent, I appreciate the way they nudge the blame onto Jesus. (laughs) Why have you treated us like this? (laughs) Why why didn't you come when we left? It it was obvious we were going. (laughs) You should have come with us. But look at Jesus' reply. This was no accident. This wasn't Jesus being disobedient. Verse 49. Why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? See, there's no remorse from Jesus. There's no apology. He's done nothing wrong. I had to be in my father's house. 
These are the first ever recorded words of Jesus in all the Gospels. And what does he say? I had to be with my father. His first words point towards his divinity. And it's obvious that Jesus belongs in the temple, his father's house. Because listen to what he's up to, verse 45. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus is not crying in a corner somewhere, sobbing for mum and dad. He's not worried about being on his own. No, he's in the thick of it. With the religious leaders of the day, he is listening and asking questions, and he is even sharing his own thoughts. Yes, Jesus is 100% human, but there is something more to Jesus. Why was Jesus so good at talking theology, even at the age of 12? Why was he able to answer questions and speak so thoughtfully and insightfully? Because when he's talking theology, he's talking about himself. When he's in the temple of God, he's in his father's house. He is not just the son of Mary, he is the son of God as well. Jesus is 100% divine. After the resurrection of Jesus and the completion of the New Testament, those early Christians wrestled so hard with trying to understand who Jesus is, trying to do justice to all the evidence that they had before them. And one of the best summaries that they put together was written in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. It's called the Nicene Creed. Listen to how they describe Jesus. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Each of those words could take a sermon to unpack what they mean. But you get the sense of it, don't you? Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, he is God from God. He is light from light, true God from true God, of the same essence as the Father. He is 100% divine. (laughs) Look how that impacts the relationship with his parents. It's a very subtle, but very brilliant shift as this account unfolds. In verse 41, it is Jesus' parents who take the initiative. They head up to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, and rightly so. They're his parents. It's what parents do. They make decisions. But after Jesus makes this revelation, I am in my father's house. I am the son of God. The initiative switches, verse 51. Then Jesus went down to Nazareth, and his parents accompanied him. Jesus, the eternal son of God, of course, according to his divine nature, he is Lord of his parents. And you could think, well, maybe that made things a bit interesting at home. You know, in the lounge, Joseph is sitting in the most comfortable chair. Dad's prerogative to have the most comfortable chair in the lounge. And Jesus walks in and looks at Joseph and says, the eternal son of God has entered the room. 
And Joseph gets up, leaves the chair, and Jesus sits down. Maybe Jesus will start using some of his divine power and authority around the house. But that is to get God all wrong. You see, because Jesus is divine, he is also humble. Verse 51. He went down to, to, to Nazareth. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Jesus submits to his parents. He obeys them. You see, he is humble because he is divine. The God who reigns enthroned above the earth becomes a son who obeys his parents. See, look at the view. Jesus is 100% human, humanity at its highest. And he is 100% divine. God who is humble. Jesus is 100% divine, 100% human. It's terrible maths, but it's brilliant theology. 100% divine and 100% human. And this is where I want us to finish. This is kind of in some ways the application. He is that for us. It's our final point. I don't think it made it into the sheets, but... Jesus is human and divine for us. You see, this passage isn't just about who Jesus is, fully human and fully divine. It's about why he's come. His death hangs over this episode. Why were the family going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover when a lamb would be sacrificed to save the people of God? The next time Passover comes up in Luke's Gospel is when Jesus is breaking bread and pouring wine, saying, It is my body that will be broken for you, and my blood that will be shed for you. And also in Luke 2, when Jesus goes missing, he's apparently lost for three days. And his mother is distraught and worried and searching for Jesus. This will all happen again. When Jesus is crucified and his body is laid in the tomb, people are distraught and they look for Jesus. And for three days he is apparently lost, gone. And just as Jesus says to his mother in Luke 2, Luke 2, why were you looking for me? So the first thing the women hear when they approach Jesus' tomb in Luke 24 is the angel saying, why are you looking for him? Luke 2. This is the first time Jesus announces his divinity and then the shadow of the cross is hanging over him. From the age of 12, Jesus knew. And as we close, I want us to meditate on something. If Jesus knew even from the age of 12 what was going to happen in the end, why did he wait another 18 plus years before he starts his public ministry. Why not get on with it straight away, with the teaching, the miracles, his suffering and his death? Why wait? Because he is fully human. He needs to be 100% human if he is going to rescue us. And that means he must wait. Do you remember the 13 children who were put who were part of that Thai football club, and they got lost in those flooded caves. Now, the rescuers on the outside knew the boys were inside, but how could they rescue them? 
could come up um, with, with some kind of massive demonstration of power, blow the mountain up, try and get them out that way. But of course, they would have killed the children as well, wouldn't they? No, they had to enter the cave. They had to join the children in their trapped state. They had to contort their bodies through submerged tunnels, seeking and searching for the children. They had to become like them underground so that they could rescue them and bring them out. And so it is with the eternal God. He couldn't rescue us from a distance. And that means he had to become like us. The eternal son of God took on a human nature so that he could live our life and die our death. And because Jesus took on a human nature and became like us, that enabled him to rescue us. But it means as well he has a human soul and a human will and a human set of emotions and human capacity to suffer and feel pain. I think that's why it was another 18 years before he burst onto the public scene. Jesus needed time. He needed time to form his human will into the likeness of his divine will. He needed time to fill his human soul with the truth of scripture and the knowledge of God. He needed time to train his emotions to respond righteously to every word of slander that would be said against him. To every punch in the stomach, to every whiplash across his back and every hammer of the nail in his hand, he needed to train his emotions to respond not with sinful anger or bitterness or disbelief, but righteously. And so for 30 years, Jesus prepared himself in communion with his father, drinking deep of the scriptures, growing in wisdom and strength and resolve and love and faith. So that when the full force of Satan attacked him, when the worst of humanity was set against him, Jesus would still obey his father. He would still act righteously. He would still endure all things to die in our place on the cross, sinless. In that Nicene Creed that I mentioned earlier, there's a wonderful line. It says, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. For us and for our salvation, Jesus is 100% divine and 100% human. George Herbert was a devout follower of Jesus and a poet. And he wrote a poem it's back in the 17th century about the death of Jesus. He writes it as if Jesus is speaking from the cross. And it has this line in it. Jesus looks down on the cross and he says, Oh, all ye who pass by, whose eyes and mind to worldly things are sharp, but to me blind. To me who took eyes that I might find you, was ever grief like mine. Did you hear that line? To me who took eyes that I might find you. Jesus, the eternal son of God, took on flesh, a human nature that he might seek and save the lost. He took on eyes that he might find us. A mouth, 
that he might share the words of life with us. Hands, that he might be pierced for us. A body, that he might be broken for us. And a heart, that he might bleed for us. Stop and look at the view. Behold your saviour. 100% human, 100% divine, for us and for our salvation. Remember to quiet and then we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you that you sent your Son, that he might live our life and die our death. Father, we pray that we would stop and look at the view. We pray that in our hearts we would contemplate the greatness, the glory, the goodness of you, of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And Heavenly Father, whatever is happening in our life, pray that you'd raise our eyes heavenward to where he is seated at your right hand. And we would find such comfort and joy and assurance and hope, knowing that he is for us and for our salvation. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.